Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Sloppy Lab. Uh, this is Bottom of the Beaker, the show all about the design, Canucks, and strategy of Keyforge, the world's very favorite unique deck game. Uh, I'm JT Russell, and uh, uh, no quick draw tonight. We've scared him off, I believe, but I do have a very special guest, the mighty Murph and Fudgenator, as it were. So <laughs> welcome back to Bottom of the Beaker, Murph. How are you doing? Thank you so much for having me. That was really good. Wow, that's I was very impressed by that intro. Well done. I It was a last minute call to go with Canucks instead of Ducks. I don't know. Is that, but I have to ask now because I got called out for being a racist on the last one. You're not, you were, you were, you were just culturally insensitive, JT. Culturally That's insensitive. Culturally okay. insensitive. Um, no, I thought that was great. I thought that was great. Then, then that was great. And I think the, um, the mighty Murphy Fudgeneer was phenomenal. What a, what a tie in. I liked it a lot. I, uh, I'm a big fan of the Canadians, especially Wolverine from the Marvel Universe, you know? Yep. Yep. That's everyone's favorite Canadian. Everyone's favorite Canadian. Also, shout out to favorite Canadians, Christine Sinclair, uh, the GOAT of Canadian soccer players, playing their final uh, match tonight uh, before she retires. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. So shout out to anyone who's watching that and um, watching some soccer history, Canadian soccer history happen tonight. <laughs> awesome. Well, I'm sure that's what Quickdraw is doing instead of being here talking with us uh, this evening. Uh, and also, we have to mention JDG, naturally. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> thanks thanks Chris. i appreciate that and not even jdg i'm over jdg in this one i appreciate that frame that clip it and ship it yeah exactly uh sorry jdg the chat is chiming in with favorite canadians and quick draw is breaking our hearts yeah <laughs> breaking our hearts yeah <laughs> I, I, this is a this is a uh, sloppy lab work schism happening right right in front of everyone's eyes uh, the drama unfolds mm-hmm. <laughs> Well, folks, we have uh, a super fun episode in store. Actually, uh, you know, one of our goals with this season is to revisit some of the uh, topics that have been popular and kind of continue the discussion, as it were. And uh, Murph, we got a chance to meet at KFC, and you said, "Hey, I'd love to chat some with you all about, you know, making it work with a small collection." And we had a really fun episode uh, last season. I want to say it was episode thirty-two, uh, which was one of our top ten. Of all time, of all time, uh, with Orion talking about, you know, playing with the budget, uh, working on a budget. And so, yeah, let's keep the conversation going. Let's see what uh, new thoughts we can bring to bear and, and revisit some of the old topics as well. But uh, yeah, uh, yeah, you, you, you brought it up as a thing that would be cool to talk about. Um, how do you want to how do you want to dive in? Yeah, absolutely. So first I want to shout out Orion for episode 38. It was um, episode 38. <laughs> it was um, I think it was competing on a budget. I was I was I, I know the number because I was listening to it before this podcast earlier today to help prep myself for this one. Nice. So had us off to them. I think they did a really good job on the episode. They're a great content creator. Love them. They did a great job. Uh, KFC casting some of the 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 uh, top cut for day two, and just really really awesome. They uh, YouTube channels flocks them all. Please go check them out. Absolutely. So today, uh, yeah, we did get to meet it, at, and I I did I've been I've been brewing on this for a while. Um, you know, big fan of the show. You know, dedicated, hardcore, <laughs> bottom of the beaker fan. Uh, there's no merch available for me to buy, but if there was, I'd I'd watch the episodes decked out in broken beakers in hexagons. Unfortunately, I can't. But because of that, I think you know one of the things I, I I'm it's very near and dear to my heart is how to make the most. You know, I, I mentioned this in some of my interviews and all that kind of stuff, but make the most of decks. And you know, a very personal 
story for me is a personal story for a lot for most people when they get into Keyforge because most people are sold on the you just need one deck idea, and it's sort of how can people take the I just need one deck and really take it as as far as it can go, and that's why I wanted to sort of develop this idea of and sort of put into the ether of Keyforge knowledge how can we make the most of a small collection and you know we should probably define small collections but um you know when i started playing keyforge i had three decks and you know i started playing i wanted to play i wanted to compete not necessarily you know win a vault tour i don't even know what those were Mm -hmm. but you know i wanted to win a game i wanted to go up against a deck that was good that and have a fair fight against it and it wasn't such that i i didn't have the mindset of i'm gonna go buy the best deck i can and do that it was, I want to take this deck that I opened and do that. And sort of, you know, when I first joined my first season of NKFL back in season 15, I think I had 30 decks, you know, somewhere between 20 and 30. And I got stomped. <laughs> I won three entire games in the whole season. It, it was it was an experience. However, I also, you know, it was it for me because, you know, because of my expectations going into it, I was sort of expecting to get stomped. I knew more or less what I was up against. And so, you know, with that management of expectations and sort of I really felt good about how some of my decks performed. I only won three three games, um, but, you know, some of the losses were close and that felt good in the moment. Um, and so, you know, how do, especially for, I think a lot of people feel intimidated to enter into competitive spaces in Keyforge because there's so much heat being thrown around all the time. Um, how do people take you know, 30, 50, 100 decks, 200 decks even, and, you know, take them and shape them, mold them, nurture them to juice every bit of amber, amber control, creature control that they can out of these decks. I love this topic, and especially now as we're hoping to see more and more new players come into the game. Uh, It's super daunting to come in as a new player and see folks with these massive collections, especially as a new player uh, and see players with these massive collections. You know, we're on the getting gearing up for the next ABR season as well. And there are some new folks coming in there. So, you know, I'm just getting going, you know, I don't have that many decks, you know, what's the expectation sort of thing. And boy, you, when you, when you walk up with th- three decks to your name against folks with decks in the thousands, it's, it's a tall order, right? It's yeah, a tall order. Absolutely. But I will say, you know, especially, you know, in the NKFL or in the minors league, which I, I love the minors league as well. A lot of the players who I think of as some of the you know toughest competition, uh, teammates excluded, obviously, are the folks who are really just like jamming their well-known decks really well and eking out all that extra value, really juicing them, as you say. Um, so uh, yeah, it resonates with me, and I think it's a really important less, a really important kind of note to hit that uh, I don't know can get I don't say drowned out, but but lost a little bit in the like the acquisition of many many decks, right? One thing that Orion. Um... One of the things with Orion is they they said they they play every single deck they open. Yes. And that is, well, some people open thousands of decks and that's not possible. Or, you you know, it would take them a lifetime. So I get that. You know, not everyone can do that. And that's something something like SAS is a great tool. But for the people that do or are able to do that, that is the best way as a start to get into it. It's really easy to write decks off. And, you know, I really applaud Orion for doing that and i know jt in that episode you were you were talking about you also embarking on some of that path obviously you have you have many Mm -hmm. decks many decks um, (laughs) but a lot of them are played yes and that's something i really really appreciate and 
Cryptos in the chat saying that they they try to play every deck that they open that looks interesting. That's a good heuristic. Um, that like you know sometimes the interesting things for me are sometimes very simple, like oh this has a rare I've never seen or this is has a couple cards that I think maybe are a cool thing. It has some recursion that I, I I haven't seen before. All that kind of stuff is um you know interesting. It doesn't need to be like this is a well-known combo in the deck to make it interesting. They can be small, very small things that make it interesting, even a funny name. You've opened some some woe decks that really jump off the page, right? Your Antiquities Dealer Eaton's Jarjet comes to mind, but you have a very, very cool um, diplomat deck that I actually got to see your match with uh, with Zoc Dataforge Stream uh, the other day, and that deck do some very cool things. That's probably not a deck that a lot of folks would have would have played past seeing that there was a, a diplomat in it. Eyes of Lost and Vamral, which I know you have Faces Wrath as well. I have, I have. It took down actually one of my very favorite decks featuring Strange Shell that I've since given to uh, given to Quickdraw uh, uh, because of the Whirlpool. You know, he is a very fitting, very fitting home for him. Uh, the deck that it took down was no slouch, absolutely no slouch. Uh, so I was I was very impressed at how it did and. And stand by what I said before, that I don't think that many folks would have given it maybe even a play after seeing The Diplomat. Yeah, and I know, um, you know, my, my approach with Woe, because this, Woe was my first set where uh, I was able to go into it sort of, and unfortunately it wasn't quite as as true as I'd hoped it would be, but I kind of go into it without Sass being a, um, you know, as prevalent a force. Because mm-hmm. obviously we were all hoping to get it before, I was hoping to get it before Sass was released for it. That didn't happen. I got it afterwards. But I made a very, very purposeful effort to go through and play. I've only opened like 13 bow decks, so I, I, I still have sealed well. Um, but I've opened, you know, I opened every deck and I've played every deck. And I've played every deck five, ten times. Um, and, you know, all of that evaluation, they only got uploaded to DOK. Many of them still are not on DOK in my collection um, because they're not going on there until I've made an evaluation on them. Uh, and yes, quick draw. All of the woe in my lineup are decks that I opened. Yep, I was considered for this so season twenty-two of NKFL. I considered three decks, uh, woe decks to come in. Um, obviously, my very spicy antiquities dealer jar deck, prospector jar, orb of wonder, um, and then I also uh, brought in my this my Amar's rebel token and a um, eyes lost and ramble, which is the, the dip in that one. Um, but yeah, I made a very active effort to play every deck and kind of especially with how woe is so surprising sometimes to really make an effort to evaluate them a with a larger sample size than i normally might evaluate a deck on or think you need to and then also sort of not not introduce any bias from sas until i've made a final evaluation on it i'm actually seeing that a number of my number of my woe decks that are performing really well were initially initially rated relatively poorly uh, by sas it's it's sort of a, a set where it feels like it's hard to see the forest through the trees as it were there's a lot that kind of hangs in the balance between you know creature distribution you know what's your main house that these sorts of things feel like they matter an awful lot and are a little bit harder to capture or at least in the way that you know maybe sas traditionally does things so i'm i'm 100 in the camp right now of uh of trying to play every single deck that i open sloppy sex that's a great way to do it <laughs> my current pool my current pool has uh yeah six different sets in it but i'm yeah i'm like i don't know it just just 
kind of feels a little little bad now to open a deck and not get the value of playing out of it too. Uh, it feels like you kind of left something on the table. We'll see if I stick by that once uh, <laughs> Grim Reminders rolls out. No, absolutely. And I think, um, you know, in, in the NKFL this season, I'm the underdog. And I was the underdog last season as well. I've, you know, I tip, I bring a lot of low sass decks. Do you mind sharing how many decks you have to your name currently? It's It's over 200, but just barely. So, and I probably have about seven woe that aren't scanned, or five woe. So we're looking about around 220, I think is a safe, rough guess. 220. I think I'm at north of 1,500, which is more than I, you know, there are many decks that I have that I don't play, though I, I definitely enjoy, like, digging through some of those ones and looking for gems. Like, the process of looking for gems that I may have overlooked before is, like, the thing that I personally enjoy a lot, so... Some of those, you know, heavily discounted AOA boxes are still turning up surprises for me, which I which I appreciate a lot. <laughs> I have 87 mass mutation decks, which make up the lion's share of my collection because I got a lot during the fire sale. And the funny thing about that is I didn't get many competitive decks from those fire sales. I actually didn't get any competitive decks in the fire sale boxes. Mm-hmm. My local store had a fire sale, and that's where I've gotten most of my competitive MM, funnily enough. Yeah, it's sort of it's it's interesting where I opened a lot of mass mutations, which is good for me. So it's like it's dark tidings at 52 and then MM at 87 are the most sets I've opened. Well, cool. Well, let's, I don't know, circle back to sort of talking about, uh, well, you had you in our notes sort of broken things down a little bit by kind of category of play, style of play, as it were, and a big mm-hmm. bucket that we've we've been talking about maybe without naming is sort of a, in a competitive setting, right? Very competitively. That's right. Yeah, we've um, finally given it a name. Finally given it a name. I mean, do you wanna you wanna lead us into maybe some thinking on the best ways to enjoy or, or really make it work with a small collection, especially when thinking competitively? I mean, we I know you've you've talked a little bit before, but it sounds like managing or having having some sort of expectation management or level setting is kind of important to that experience, at least as you're as you're defining it here. Absolutely. So I mean I, I break it into four four groups yeah four groups of play so th- i hope everyone enjoyed the preamble um now we're getting to the meat and potatoes of discussion so i break it down into four and i think of keyforge in sort of four different ways of how do i enjoy my collection and now for this episode we're focusing on small collections you know i think this applies to all sizes of collections however i okay. think we'll we're gonna focus on like you know because they're gonna have small less options so how do i maximize the small collection of these so there's four categories. There's com- there, you can enjoy your competitive collection competitively. You can enjoy your collection casually competitively. You can enjoy your collection casually, or you can enjoy your collection solo. So competitively, how I break it down is sort of what we've been talking. Um, although there's a, a strong mix here. So ca- comp- casually competitively and competitively are broadly sort of in the same boat. But when I mean competitive, there's as opposed to casually competitive, there's some real there's stakes in the line. Okay. So I'm talking about you're going to a vault tour and you're trying to win $3,000. Like there are, whatever it is, store championships, you're trying to win an invite for worlds, you know, you're trying to win the store leadership deck. Those those seem like they're coming back, so maybe you're trying to win the store leadership deck. You're just, you're trying, like you're playing for stakes. Um, and something a little bit more meaningful than just like honor or glory. Okay. So that's what I mean by competitively. And then casually competitively, competitively, is entering into a competitive space with the with the uh, with the goal to have fun and enjoy the experience and sort of participate in the sport for the sport's sake if that makes sense winning is still the goal 
you're still you're still entering with a competitive mindset, but the stakes of you winning are lower. Um, so I think, and I think the reason I separate them like that is because the management of expectations is 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 the different part. I think that's a really a really good distinction uh, and a kind of an interesting interesting line to I don't know tease apart the differences between. Uh, I don't want to derail us too much, but I, I I do feel like there was a significant group of folks who bemoaned the like introduction of cash prizes for vault tours and it's it's a lot it has a, a lot be you know has a lot to do with maybe pushing that sort of event from this what you're calling casual competitive to like purely competitive as it were and i would say it would i mean i i'm someone who keyforge has a pricing problem which i understand and i think most i think most people do and i think yeah. cash pricing is a, is a nice compromise for now until maybe we can figure something out as a community or ghost galaxy has you know they use their big brains and figure something out as well, something out. Um, cash pricing is fine, and having pricing to incentivize people to go to events and really try and bring their best, I think that's great. Yeah. But money and money changes things. Money changes people, changes how people approach the event, how they think about the event, and how they react. So yeah, I, I do think it it does change it from a casual competitor. The only thing you're trying to your only thing you're competing for is honor and glory. Um, you know now maybe someone can put a down payment on a car if they win you know it's um it's it's just money changes things and not not, not in a bad way or a good way necessarily just it, it just changes things sure. so yeah i do like to, i do like to change to have that distinction because as i said it, it comes into management of expectations of how you have to how you have to sort of conceptualize and approach the event if from you know i have to think about an approach the event changes based on what kind of stakes are on the line so moving on from those two, which I think is going to be the bulk of our discussion tonight, uh, we have the you can, the casual and solo sections. So casual is locals, casual leagues, and again, casual leagues can also be enjoyed casually competitively. Leagues like Kagi, Miners, ABR, um, I think they're all they're all given a stint of hey, if people just want to hang out, have fun, play decks they like, this is a wonderful space for them. Kagi's like that, Miner's like that, Abiro's like that. I'm sure there's others too, but I'm just I'm just missing. Um, so I think those leagues are something really you can really really go and say, I'm not even trying to win, I just kinda want to play some Keyforge. And I think that's a clear distinction of casual play is that the goal of the game is to enjoy it. Yep. The goal of the game is not to win. So maybe that plays you mean you're playing your own mini game within it. You know, you can be doing all sorts of things, but the goal isn't to win, it's to have fun. That's casual Keyforge. And actually, shout out to Fabulousing and June Slash of Yourself for Keymander, because I think that's now a new, hot, trendy, the kids are all over it, way to play Keyforge that you can do. And the whole point of it is to have fun. No, no one cares if you win a game of Keymander. If anyone's unfamiliar with the reference, uh, it is a Keyforge version of Commander, which is a four-person multiplayer format. Um, so really cool. I highly recommend looking it up. I'm sure, I'm sure the producer will put it in the show notes. And, absolutely <laughs> absolutely and yeah shout out to them because that seems like a really 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 fun format for casual play and i'm excited to introduce it at my lgs as well i um, i didn't get a chance to try it out i will say that Hawk was very disappointed last time he jumped in here uh not to get to give a shout out to it so i'm glad you're doing it now um haven't tried it yet but it, it looked like an awful lot of folks were having an awful lot of fun with it at yeah KF. Yeah. 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 I got to play at KFC and uh, with with uh, Fabulous and themselves, and I lost. I was playing a purge self purge deck. Um, mm-hmm. that was a ton of fun. But um, I, I 
really recommend checking it out for casual play. I think it's I think it's great. I think it has a lot of the hallmarks of what of the good things that Commander has, um, but being in Keyforge, which is wonderful, and also cool. it gives it gives value to decks that otherwise don't have value in Unchained and Menagerie because they're legal for use in it. So that's really cool. Um, I highly recommend it. Go check it out. And uh, they have a TTS mod as well. So if you ever if you don't have a local scene, um, mm. I'm sure you could finally find some people to play it on their on the Discord server and uh, try it out. So moving from there, then we have if you're if you're not looking to enjoy your competitive collection against another player, you can enjoy it solo. You know, I am someone who plays a lot of solo games. I love playing solo. Um, you can do that through setting up your own tournaments, using using your own decks or even outside decks too, right? Because you're, you're the pilot. Doesn't it's single player. No one cares what you do. You can manual mode all three keys if you want. Um, <laughs> you know, like it's single player. You can do whatever you want. So like setting up tournaments of decks, really fun. I love running gauntlets. I love running solo internal tournaments. It's all really, really fun for me for me to do that. Um, and you know, it's a really nice time thing too because I don't need to. No one cares if I I move. You know, I leave the computer for twenty minutes to go do something and come back. The game's still there. My opponent hasn't isn't rage quit and reported me. um so it's way it's 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 really nice to enjoy and then there's adventures as well i think the adventures are great they're really fun to play solo uh, on tabletop simulator or in person if you ever get the chance to do that because it it, it's a little it's a it's a puzzle you get to play different types of decks it's just fun and you'll especially in some of them you're gonna get gonna get your teeth kicked in because some of the stuff's really tough. Some of them are um, tough, yeah. Some of them are tough, but it's fun. It's a fun solo game, and you know you can change the rules as you want because it's single player. Highly recommend that. That's a really fun way to enjoy your collection, and it's a really stress-free way to enjoy your collection and just play KeyForge without any pressure. So really fun. Recommend it. It's, fun, it's a good fun way to learn your decks, especially solo. Solo is a great way to learn your decks. Mm. So here's a question for you. I've seen your primary account on TCO. I've seen Murph Alt on TCO. Mm-hmm. Are you also Morph on TCO? I'm not Morph. I'm not. <laughs> I haven't played against Morph yet, nor have I expected in a Morph game, but I'm a little worried that it is me and I haven't figured it out. <laughs> okay, interesting. And yeah, I actually, I really, I've really appreciated this uh, uh, over the last week, few weeks. I don't know how, how long it's been since I've started, but they... The Nordic server, the NKFL uh, server, is running a solo event, and I've yep. been seeing a lot of alt of it, alt um, accounts rolling out on TCO, and it's fun to see, you know, who's got what alt account. I don't know if I don't know if you're in this one, Zach, but uh, Black Hole X is a favorite, you know, and uh, the second act has a good one, final act, which I really enjoy. I don't know, get a good chuckle out of seeing some of these alt accounts. Yeah, I think um, Fabulousing has a fabulous winning. Uh, Fabulousing. Oh, it's Fabulousing. That's right. That's right. Fabulousing. It's Fabulousing, which is a really fun, <laughs> a really fun alt account name. Mine's boring. Mine's just Murph Alt. Murph Alt. Yeah. yeah. Um, although you're lucky if you ever get graced by Murph Alt spectating your game instead of Murph. You must be playing another game somewhere else. I don't know. <laughs> that's, that's it, yeah. <laughs> or I'm spectating two games at once. You never know. On the Sloppy Lab Work team, you know, you know when the, the alt accounts start rolling in, there are two events going on. <laughs> so yeah, so that's, that's what we'll play. Um, and those are the four, so I'll, I'll, I'll run it back through. So the four categories I personally break down uh, Keyforge play is into solo, casual, casually competitive, and competitive. And those are the four distinct categories. Do you have one that you gravitate towards mostly? Casually competitive and solo. 
I play Keyforge for the sake of playing Keyforge. I like to be competitive for the sake of being competitive. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't need stakes to make the com- the competition enjoyable or worthwhile for me. I think I enjoy the stakes just for the sake of them. Uh, the reality is, uh, if I'm if I'm getting on a plane to go to a vault tour, the <laughs> the EV on winning is not great. But yeah, management expectations for competitive. I have an interesting question too. That's that's somewhat tangential. I don't know. And I I, I wrestle with this actually. I wrestle this uh, even in my day job, wondering about a similar question. You know, like accessibility of the game, and not just not just to get in and play, but to feel like you have real meaningful shots at the highest levels. I work in the world of of squash, which is a racket sport. I mean, I have a few rackets in my bag when I go to play, right? And a racket's going to run you 100, 150 bucks easy. And, and you start asking yourself as you're tallying up some of these things, the cost for equipment, shoes, a racket, you know, glasses, whatever, you know, what's, what's the reasonable amount to ask somebody to spend on equipment just to come out and play? And mm-hmm. then like, what's a reasonable amount to ask somebody to spend to come out and play at a like world championship level event? And I think those are, you know, maybe, maybe a little bit different. It's, it's interesting to wrestle with. Um, so from a competitive sense, when you're talking about like, Hey, we're going to hold a world championship. I don't know. Is it, is it different to you? Like what's, what's a, uh, a reasonable amount to like, feel like folks ought to, ought to be, I don't know, open to putting out for equipment or, or tour for the game in general. I, I don't know. That's a tough question. I know. But <laughs> So there's some good analogies here too, right? Cause I mean, if you're talking about sports, oftentimes, you know, if you want to go play hockey, which is a very equipment intensive sport. Yeah. Topical. Cause I'm Canadian. Sure. Um, if Naturally. you want to go play hockey, right. It's, if if you're playing competitively, especially if you're a goal, we're not going to leave goalies. Goalies are leaving out of this. That's like a thousand dollars. Well, they're paying you know, for like teeth replacements for the rest of their life. So, it's like... <laughs> well, yeah. uh, tans- a tangent, tangent for a second. You got to pay for helmet. You got to pay for all the pads, right? It's yeah. it's special. It's special goalie pads, special skates, special stick. You know, special helmet. You can't use that helmet anywhere else. You can't go ice skating in the helmet. There's equipment rentals typically at a, at venues. You, know, you can rent mm-hmm. skates, you can rent a helmet, you can rent a stick, you can rent gloves. And also there's a lot of, you know, talk about secondary market, there's a lot of secondhand equipment out there. Yep. And same with, I'm assuming, you know, in squash, I'm, I'm sure you can get a rental racket. Is it going to be the best racket in the world? Absolutely not, far from it. But it, it allows you to play the game. Keyforge, obviously, you know, a lot of the community is really happy to loan decks. And we do see that all the time. I think Keyforge is a little bit different, though, because the decks are sentimental. And so loaning decks is a very different thing than just loaning equipment out. Some people are happy to do it, um, but some people don't want to do it. So Keyforge gets around that and the fact that a deck is like $15, they can go buy one deck and they can still play, right? So that's sort of the workaround here is that if you're just asking people to show up and play, mm-hmm. all they need is one deck. All they need is $15 and tokens. You can even share tokens. But to ask them to compete at a world championship level in a, you know, in a traditional sport, I would expect hundreds of dollars on the table. Mm. With the exception of maybe running. But even then, you're probably buying really nice running shoes. And I mean, there's a lot that goes into it because people will say, oh, you, if you want to play chess at the highest level, you know, you don't have to buy anything. Well, is it true though? I mean, you even, I mean, no. even hockey, if you were, if you were really serious about being a top tier hockey player, you would have been paying for lessons most of your life, lessons exactly. and coaches and everything. And if you were a top tier chess player, like you darn sure have been paying for, uh, paying for coaches. Uh, for a lot, a lot of your career as well, um, so it's it's tricky, and I think that 
part of part of the split that you've put here in the different categories of play, and even some of the uh, some of the the thoughts that we've you know thrown around on pricing, kind of scratches at whether you look at the game as sort of an esport or as more of a more akin to like a board game experience. Because mm-hmm. I mean, you know, Richard Garfield has talked about early thoughts on magic and I'm, I'm not sure if uh, they've said the same about Keyforge, but you know they kind of expected folks to go in and pay about as much as you would for a board game right like a like a good board game not like you know you're, you're gonna you know pay 20 bucks for a monopoly or whatever at walmart yeah you're not paying 30 40 dollars for Catan. you're paying for gloomhaven yeah exactly and so you know you, you maybe you've you've accumulated a display or two worth of decks a few displays maybe over the course of your uh, over the course of your time, and you know, in the magic world, you're you're still cobbling together pretty scrappy decks. Um, and in, in the Keyforge world, you probably haven't mined enough to see some really really degenerate stuff, most likely. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, but it's interesting. Uh, so I don't know if that was more of a tangent, um, but I think yeah, it gets at whether you consider the game uh, in either of those lights. And I don't know if. Uh, if that's sort of a spectrum that maps onto the breakdowns here and sort of whether you consider it, consider the game sort of more of a, an out of the box board game or more, more e-sport e. I think certainly in solo play, you can consider it very, very board game like, but maybe not. Uh, I would say ca- uh, casual and solo board is very board game like. Okay. Someone can spend, let's say $100, $150. They can spend $150. They can buy one. Maybe they buy one pretty decent secondary market deck, and then a display of a display of Winds of Exchange. Um, that's pretty reasonable, right? And then they've got yep. you know thirteen decks, and if they're playing solo, the, you know the world is limitless for test decks. So there's three million test decks, and yep. then there's the adventures and stuff, and that's at least thirteen matches, and the decks can be played different ways. You can do a lot of things with them. Um, so you know you're doing pretty well there. And then in the, you know, casually competitive, you know, on the casual side, doesn't matter. Just pick a deck you like and play it a lot. In the casually competitive side, you know, you're probably, you're, you're not quite getting into like esport range. I think if you, if you, if once you're in competitive, like straight competitive, you're trying to win worlds, trying to win $12,000. You had a survey and I say you, it's an inclusive you of sloppy lab work, bottom of the beaker. You had an episode and a survey about what people expected competitive decks to cost. Yep. And if I remember correctly, the number came out to be I think around four hundred dollars. That was that was right around the median value. We can we can double check. And you have to remember too that this was this was very early on, kind of in us doing bottom beaker things, coming right out of the pandemic times for Keyforge, you know, peak hiatus as it were. Mm-hmm. And this wasn't like. There was there was no there was no notion of any sort of event where you could uh, win money playing money. Keyforge. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. This is just to win in a competitive event. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Not for the sake of like, okay, now people are trying to play for twelve thousand dollars. Right. Right. And does that change anything? Maybe not. Um, but it might not change any of the caliber of deck truly that you or how much money you need to put down. But four hundred dollars is going to get you a really really good deck. Like if you've got four hundred dollars to throw around, you can get some real heat if you spend the time to look for it totally you can get you can get a couple of hex ads worth of real heat yeah and, and to be clear i don't think you have to spend that much right like i think if you were gonna drop that much on a deck you can get a very very good deck yes yeah absolutely. exactly 
or like a good triad or you know a good hex head something like that um so i think once you get into competitive it's very i think it's more of an esport and maybe casually competitive as well it, it's casually competitive hinges on what your expectations are and that's where the management of expectations comes so it's so important for how you enjoy the format because if you expect to go into world championships with a self-opened you vote you opened one display of aoa and you took the best deck from there and you go to you know a vault tour and you say i'm going to be incredibly disappointed if i don't get first place you're not going to have a good time mm. Because I don't care who you are. I don't care if you have the most expensive deck in the world, Pink Fraud. Your odds of winning a Vault Tour are so low. No one's going to have fun at that event if that's their expectation. It's especially not going to have fun if you're going in with a deck that, like a small collection deck. And a deck that it is, it is maybe already an underdog. So mm. management of expectations is key to casually competitive for... Because I think you can be as competitive or casually competitive as you want with as little as you want if your expectations are properly aligned. I, I don't think there's any kind of dancing around that you're at a disadvantage if you have a small collection versus a, versus a player with a larger collection. I mean, um, let's ignoring like, um, you know, I've got 10 decks, but I only bought the 10 best decks out in the world world sort of a thing. Um, yeah, if I just opened a display of AOA and I rolled into a Vault Tour, I'm, I'm at a disadvantage relative to folks who spent time combing the secondary market for gems and and are opening displays and displays to find to find monsters yeah yeah but i don't know i mean I, I i like this tier a lot because i personally do identify as a very competitive player but a lot of my competitive nature is kind of inwardly focused and it's not like hey can i beat you can i do the cool thing or can i like uh can i push this deck farther than it looks like it ought to be pushed um, on paper, and I think with with that, like even when I'm bringing some janky AOA, um, as it were, I do love janky AOA decks. Like you can have a lot of fun and f feel like you're being very competitive doing it. And I, one of the things that I've always recommended people ask me, like, oh, like what do I what do I look for in a deck? And I think, and I think Zach, I think Zach Armstrong had a I think had a quote about this as well in their NARP. I think in, in I think maybe in the NARP episode, mm. basically find a deck where you have fun when you lose because mm, like if you're able to do that with a deck you will a play it a lot because you're always having fun you have fun if you win have fun if you lose and it's just it's if, if the whole process is good you're gonna you're gonna be incentivized to get better because you're already having fun how do i get how do i have more fun you know and like it's gonna it's gonna you're gonna naturally want to explore the deck more you're gonna naturally want to play out different lines see what you can do with it so playing a deck that you enjoy playing when you're losing is really is really important to I think some of the enjoyment parts of how do I enjoy a small collection because that enjoy how do you enjoy a small collection you know in, the enjoyment's the most important part and mm. you have to enjoy the deck you're playing if you go on a secondary market and just buy six you know buy three decks you hate playing but you know they're really good you're not going to enjoy it even if you have a small collection. Um, so it's just, you know, find a deck, you know, to borrow this term from Aurora, find a deck you have an affinity for. Although um, m most of my teammates would say maybe I shouldn't because most of the decks that I enjoy uh, fall into the negative play experience category. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I mean, we all have, we all have our, our perversions and it's, uh, yours happens to express itself in Keyforge. Yeah, don't, don't judge, you know. 
Yeah, there's uh, no kink shaming. Thirty turn, thirty turn games are great. I I think. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I love a grindy game. I, I do love a grindy game. Um, I mean, I, I I'm just glad. I'll just say, I will say, I'm just glad I wasn't trapped in that uh that game Lesto was with Quick Draw. I think that would have been um, while well, it may have been Quick Draw's favorite game ever, favorite match ever, because I think there was three of those games. Oh um, my gosh. That was uh. <laughs> My brain would uh, not like that. You know, I, I love a grindy game, but I can still appreciate the uh, the match timer as well. <laughs> agreed, agreed. <laughs> well, I mean, that's cool. And that, that I think that kind of, uh, I mean, makes clear some of the expectation setting that you had in mind for uh, casually competitive, right? Uh, yeah. Was, yeah. And, uh, and so let's, let's dig into then sort of mindset and, and how you go about you know, finding your, your joy or, or just managing your expectations, bringing a smaller collection to a very competitive setting. Is there, is there kind of a shift there for you? Um, so I'll just repeat the question back to you. So I, I make sure I know what I'm, I'm answering. Yeah. Um, so sort of the difference between it's, is there a shift of enjoyment between casually competitive and competitive? Yeah. Or, and specifically as relates to your, your mindset and expectations. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, um, if I'm going, because I think in terms of competitive events, the competitive events we have available are, I mean, they're pretty limited, right? They're just pretty much just Archon mm-hmm. right now. Um, so if I'm going into a Archon event saying, first step is what are my expectations? What's my goal? What am I, like, what am I, why am I going into this event? Typically, I'm going to the event to play, to play Keyforge. Um, that's the first, that's the first goal. The first goal is, is it's a success if I go play Keyforge. That's that's the first win. Yeah. The second win is if I do well, if I think I done I've done well, I'm happy with my performance. For me, that means I think I've played cleanly. I think I made good decisions. I had good game plans, and you know I played the best I could in the moment. So for me, that's a huge that's a huge win from my my competitive mindset. Is did I play well? Mm-hmm. Third one is did I win? Did I win as, as many games as I could? Fourth is do I did I place well? Okay. So I think. You know, for myself, in a competitive sense, my final placement is the least important thing. Sort of in that order as you listed them. Yeah, that's that's the order of importance for me for going into an event, which helps soften the blow of any loss. Because I'm already, now I'm on, I'm on, the thing that I haven't achieved is step four instead of step one. Um, now, if you are someone who's, you know, not, not to throw any, not to throw any shade here, but this is a reference as an example, if you're someone who maybe spent a lot of money on a deck, you know, trying to recoup some of that value by winning, that might be goal two, right? Sure. And if you don't do that, you know, that's, it's, it's not going to be as good time if you don't make that. Um, so for me, that's, that's, but I mean, that's also a reasonable goal, right? I think cause like we can have reasonable goals. If your goal is a top eight, that's a good goal. I think that's very reasonable. If I think I think a lot of people with small collections included can have that as a reasonable goal for a, a, most events. Um, and then if we're talking about, hey, I have a small collection, how do I pick a deck for an Archon event? Me personally, um, I like to look, you know, I'm happy to play any deck that has any possible leg to stand on. It could be a peg leg. It could be, you know, it, it could be anything. As long as it has a game plan, I will play that deck to the best of its ability in a competitive environment. And, you know, you can hold me to that. Um, <laughs> as I'm sure some people might try to. Um, and I don't know. I don't know if it's on stream, but uh, one deck it is on stream. Okay, good. 
Um, one deck that I like that is one of my favorite decks, period, is Sir D God Totem that we see on screen. It is an AOA deck, um, and it is a 57 SAS deck. I think on pretty much anyone's first brush with this deck, it's going in the trash. Like, it's just straight to the bin. Um, but for me, you know, especially I open this. This was a sealed open. This was a sealed deck that I opened and I played blind sealed with. And I had a lot of fun with it. And I had fun with it. That's the most important thing for me is I didn't win my first game. I put up a good fight, but I lost. But I had a lot of fun losing. You know, I was doing fun things with the Exhum. There was a there's a Witch of the Wilds that I could cheat. I, I love house cheating in Keyforge. So I got to I got to cheat house, house cheat with the Witch of the Wilds, which is you play an untamed card if Unhanged is in your active house. Um, it's got Glimmer Lock. It can Glimmer Lock with a Nature's Call and Glimmer. And just tons of fun things. Got Plague Rats. Love Plague Rats. People are sleeping on Plague Rats. <laughs> <laughs> and it doesn't even have Plague Rat payoff. As I was talking to GT earlier, it, it, before the stream, it doesn't have Plague Rat payoff. It doesn't have Marcy's Amber. It doesn't have a um, Misery Exploit. It doesn't have a Healing Blast. Cleansing Wave, that's the name of the, that's the, name of the card. Mm-hmm. But there's, no, there's no payoff for the rats pinging damage. The rats are just creature control. And it's just, this deck is just fun. And, you know, and the strategy here is it's a crush deck. This has got 19 Expected Amber, which isn't anything to write home about. It's got 14 Seek, which is also nothing to write home about. I think the, the one thing it does have is 18 pips, which is, that's, you know, you're pretty happy to see that in a deck. Yes, yes. But this deck, I bring this to my locals. I play this on, key, on TCO. It is a deck that will and can beat high 70s. It beats 80s. You know, I don't know if it's ever beat a 90, but let's say it beats a, it beats 90s. I saw it happen one time. There we go. There we go. We got <laughs> we got a <laughs> we got eyewitness. Um, and it beats good decks. And it, it, you know, is does it going to beat great decks? I don't know. I, I haven't really you know pushed it that hard. Um, I'm sure it could. I, I have a lot of faith in this deck. You know, this is a deck where I think you know from playing it. It is a deck that you can really, if you've played it enough, you can squeeze a lot of value out of some not good cards. It's good to be bad, as your episode was, mm-hmm. um, you know, two two episodes ago, I think. You know, it has a lot of bad cards, but you can make the bad cards work to get value out of them. And I love doing that in Keyforge. Um, and this is a deck where, yeah, I think this is a good example of, you know, is this going to go my NKF set? Not this, you know, not in any season beforehand but it may have when i joined in season 15 you know if i had opened it then i may have played it then because Mm -hmm. this deck is a deck that i I do have confidence can perform in a competitive setting even though it's not a not a deck i would call a competitive deck but it's a deck that can perform you've played an awful lot so you've you've learned how to squeak a lot of value i I love especially decks that are very dynamic uh, and have lots of say recursion um, which is one of the reasons why I love AOA. It produces a lot of decks that have small small values for you to eke out, provide lots of opportunities uh, for dynamic play, and also do have recursion. So you see things like Song of Spring, and you kind of say, ho hum, it's a pip most of the time. But uh, alongside, say, uh, you know, Glimmers, it becomes an engine, right? Especially with the, with the, the Nature's Call uh uh, lurking so uh so so super cool i mean and I, I love seeing you know things like plague rats paired with uh, uh what do we have with uh, sucker punch even you know like you like can you yep. can put things in range there's lot, lots of lots of value to eke out and uh and i think my where, where am i driving with this you know 
if you're looking for for some of these decks that may be in your collection and you're, you're wondering which of them can punch up i mean you mentioned the pips but my my kind of overarching thing is you know try to try to imagine a matchup and uh and explain to yourself how you won even though you haven't played it yet right how did it mm-hmm. win? and if you can like find a story that you believe like okay there's like there's a thing there um and i mean maybe sir uh, god totem yeah, it jams a lot of pips, but you've got the you've got the glimlock, and like just that alone is like an angle that you can push towards, right? And like, and if you said, hey, you know, folks on my team, you know, whoever, like, I took Sir God Totem and glimlock him, and that was it, and they're like, oh, like I believe that, you know, <laughs> like, yeah, I, yeah, I love that. It's, I think that that is a that's a really beautiful um, way to 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 talk about a deck and evaluate a deck. Uh, I have I have one that I, what's sort of similar camp. Uh, w Peters uh, Alfiero di Novalo Cupo, which quick draws is screaming at his computer somewhere. <laughs> but that <laughs> <laughs> is in a similar in a similar camp. Uh, although it it is it was a secondary market purchase, but is a is a deck rated in the mid fifties uh, that I will bring to the competitive queue and has has beaten some very highly rated decks. And it's all about, you know, are there lines in here that you that you kind of believe can be pushed? Um, and it, if yeah, that's the case, I'm, then yeah, yeah. And I'm I'm looking at it now, and I think, yeah, I I I full heartedly believe there are lines in this deck where I can see it winning. So I'll tie this in a little bit before we move on to more just throwing decks at the at the listeners. Because um, the one thing I think I think that you know, if we move on to four competitive events, is that you know, I really do think as long as the deck has a game plan as we saw with um, W. Peters and we also saw with God Totem, like those have a game plan. As you said, like we, you can talk through the deck, talk through a potential matchup and say how it wins. If it can do that, you can bring it to an event with the, as you know, as I, as the, with the expectations I've sort of laid out earlier and you will get, you can get some wins, right? Maybe you need to get lucky, but that's every card. Game. That's every game at Keyforge you need to get lucky in. So maybe you need to get lucky, but you can win. And if your goal is go there, play the best you can, do the like, play cleanly, eke the most out of your deck you can, and try and get some wins, you can do that. Have a really great time, and I I believe I believe you can get some wins. I believe you can top eight. Mm-hmm. Might not happen most times, but it can happen, you know. And so I think you know there are decks in your collection, you know, regardless of the size, where they have a game plan that you can play into, play towards, and win a game with against good decks and you know I, I believe that for collections of any size one deck even you know i, I think that that deck has probably has a game plan because somehow somehow this in the wild west of keyforge decks are competent most decks are competent um so yeah i i just really believe that and i think we can sort of we can extend that into some more i have two more decks i think but i don't know if we'll get to both of them but you know i have two more decks that i i put in that camp of oh, two of them the next two our decks i one of them has been in my nkfl lineups um which is gonna which is going to lead into another point i have about competitive formats and mm. being a competitive casually competitive player uh in or competitive player with a with a small collection and you know both of them one of them's been considered for like five many seasons in a row uh, which is the dark tidings deck which we'll get to and then another one has been in my lineup which is another aoa deck love aoa um but I think before I do that, I think I'd like to take a moment and talk about formats you can play to help you be more, to put yourself in a better competitive play situation with a small collection. 
And as you said sort of earlier on the show, a player with a small collection is always at a disadvantage to a player with a larger collection. It's just how the game of Keyforge works. Saskap events, you know, anything. A player with a larger collection is going to be advantaged. Now, there are formats which nullified some of this advantage. And, you know, just to name a few of them, um, I guess there's kind of two types, two categories of, of formats. And I'd say decks, formats that have a banning and selection phase and have decks unplayed. We've talked about a lot. You've talked a lot. I've talked a lot about my channel. You've talked about it a lot on Bottle of the Beaker. Um, formats like Nordic Hexet or Triad Best of One. Yes. And then there's the deck bidding slash swapping formats. And those are things like Adaptive, Tesla, Newton, Moirai, those sort of formats. And they're doing it in different ways. But they're still, if you're a small collection, you are in a better spot to compete in those formats than you are in something like Open Archon or Open Alliance. And I think that's largely because the requirements for the deck to the, the requirements for the decks are less. Decks have to do less things on, on a whole. Each individual deck has to carry less weight. We could say. Yeah, I think that's a great way of saying it. Yeah, each deck, each deck does have to do less weight, and each deck can be a role player. Sure. Right, because I think the one of the one of the one of the hallmarks of you know these budget decks that I'll call them the, the, like God Totem, right? God Totem has one point three A, has no artifact control, right? I think the a large piece of budget decks is they lack in some form or another in their ability to respond to the opponent. Mm, interesting. If the deck can choose its matchups, or the deck has some control over it, it's going to be able to put itself. But the pilot is going to be able to put it in a better position. I think that is a really, really great way. That's why I love those formats. Like I really love those formats because they allow for this depth and greater breadth of decks to be used and try to find a home and life where they can live to the fullest and actually have like a real purpose rather than just being like, oh, well, you know, I'm doing the best I can with what I got. These have a real purpose in 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 a triad lineup or a hexad lineup, or they're they're like this is a great adaptive deck, you know, like they have a home that isn't just I'm going to do the best I can. It's well now these are perfect for this spot. I love all of the banning selection formats that get leave decks out. I mean, you give decks a chance to show, be played when they shine and be benched when they when they don't. I guess, and that really exactly. gives a little bit of a leg up to folks who may be bringing. A lineup where decks don't shine in every situation, right? And yeah, if you think of the the bar that a deck has to reach an archon, you can, and that's maybe across a bunch of different criteria. You can bring decks that reach that bar in single criteria, though maybe not in all. For say, try a best of one and select it at the time when that one spike actually matters for a matchup. Say. Um, so I don't know. I don't know if uh, Ghost Galaxy is listening. I'm sure they're not, but <laughs> I, I would love to see Triad Best of One as sort of like premier Archon event instead of Archon Solo. I don't know. That would be cool. Me too. Like I love Adaptive. If I I understand the logistical problems with Adaptive, I really want to try Best of One to be a competitive format. You know, if I had a wish, Adaptive would come back, but I really think Triad Best of One really should come back. Yeah, we're talking about smaller collections, but it's also a reason to give some of your other decks more play, you know, dig deeper into your collections. All this talk applies to every collections, every size, but we're focusing on how do you, how do you maximize the small collection? And I actually, I'm personally of the opinion, I don't 
really like Triad Vesta 3, which I know is blasphemous to some people. Some people are clutching their pearls with that kind of statement. <laughs> but I don't like Triad Vesta 3. I think Triad Vesta 3 is a not a bad format, but it's not a, it's, it's not a format I really like to engage in because I, I feel less in control in Triad Vesta 3, mm. if that makes sense. It sort of feels like, you know, my, we both get a ban and then there's no agency after that. Both of our, mm. all of our decks are going to play each other and that's that whoever comes out on top comes on top there's no like deeper strategy there's no mind games you know it's just can both of my decks beat both of your decks in broad strokes i think triad best of three uh comes down to sort of and this is these generalizations but comes down to a weakest link among three decks Mm -hmm. and as opposed to in best of one where uh your weakest link in a particular matchup gets to sit out um but yeah, it comes down to your weakest link, which is even more punishing to those with smaller collections than exactly. uh, than Archon even, per se. Yeah. Archon Solo. And, you know, I, I think, you know, I'm in a position in my Keyforge career that I think I have a I have solid decks to make a triad with. You know, and it's 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 not maybe there's some bias in me coming through on the on the best of three angle. Um but yeah, I just think that that agency offered to the player in best of one really is very valuable. Um, two, I guess you know. I think it. I think as you said, it helps players with big collections because you do get to use those pinch hitters. You know, allows you to enjoy that collection a bit more than just saying like, oh, well, I need to have, I need the deck to have everything. Doesn't need to anymore. But no, it really helps put players in a players with small collections feel a lot less pinched. Banning formats, great for players with small collections. I think you can, if you want to take part in those, you can do a lot of there. Feel and feel really competitive with not a lot, especially if you have you know clear ideas of what you're trying to do with you know a lineup going into it which is hard right because it's also it's 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 sort of a double it's it's there's two problems too right where often players with small collections are new players Mm -hmm. right they're not players that maybe aren't as entrenched they are not as deeply learned on all the nuances of keyforge and the strategy and you know when to hold cards when to discard deltas and all sorts of different you know larger concepts of playing the game competitively and you know maybe it's it, it at that point it is a little harder to to sort of eke out those advantages you might get in a sir god d god totem or maybe it's harder to eke those out as you would get in a peters or it's or you know for me when i started the chat wants me to talk about judge so i'm going to use this as a launching point it would be when i started playing i opened judge the cruz Sucera judge and i couldn't win with that deck that deck you know, I lost maybe 20 games in a row, genuinely, with that deck. Um, yeah, I brought to locals to play on TCO. I couldn't, I didn't win with it. Not once. I could sort of feel, I felt the deck sort of had something going on. I just couldn't figure out what it was. Um, you know, and a lot of the problem was I just was playing cards. I didn't understand holding cards. I didn't understand, you know, hand shaping. I didn't understand archiving and like long-term game planning or figuring out what the deck was trying to do. So, you know, I just played the United Action the first turn I got it. Um but as I played the deck more and I started to develop more as a player, I kind of realized, oh, okay, that you know, like it really started to click a bit more. And then I started to win more, and now it's my best deck. Hmm. You know, and I think that's that's a really, you know, I I, I don't know, that's probably a unique journey. Um, you know, I'm sure not everyone is is has got opened their one of their first decks ever opened has become one of their best decks. But for me, it was quite a journey of sort of discovery, and was really eye opening that. There is sometimes you do have to put in a lot of work with a deck to really get it to a point 
where it's going to perform for you. And sometimes you need to put in a lot of work as a player to get to a point where you can perform where you want to perform with a deck. You know, sometimes, you know, sometimes there's decks where you say, I'm not ready for this deck as a player. You know, I, I these decks, I, I'm not able to capitalize on what this deck's trying to do. I think that's very real. So, you know, um, being a skilled player helps maximize a small collection. Which is, you know, is is something that only... Um, uh, that's a great question. Quick try in the chat asking, how many games did I play with Judge before I said I'm going to put this in Minecraft lineup? Um, when did I join? I probably played 40 games. Okay. And at that point, it was it also it, it was also helped by it was one of my higher SAS decks in my in my collection at 74. Actually, it might have been the highest. Um, it might have been the highest. Actually, I think no. I think I had a I had a 76. I think in Samir at that time. Mm-hmm. Um. So that was also partially why, but by that time I sort of I had gotten a much better hold of the deck and sort of felt like I was I was wrestling with it with what its game plan was a lot better, um, which I guess has has led me to always be a combo player and was the reason why I always play around infighting no matter what the deck I'm facing is. It's just had such an ingrained habit in me. Um, yeah, okay, this is quick try quick try out there at unable to unable to join the stream but able to. But walls and text in chat. So we'll take a we'll take a, a detour here, and we'll do a bit of a deep dive on Judge, because um, yeah, as, as Quicktro says in the chat, right, it, it is a very unassuming deck list. You know, I people always tell me people so many times people have told me playing it in competitive scenes, they're like, "Wow, I, you know, I I don't understand what this deck wants to do." You know, like this deck didn't look like anything. Um, some people are like, I don't know what these cards even are. Mm-hmm. You know, there's lots of things, and um, it does have a lot of depth. And you know, it, it's there's so many small pieces to judge, kind of like Sir D God Totem, right? As you said, it's a very dynamic deck where there's a lot of stuff going on, and that you've got to take some weird turns, you got to do some hand shaping. Um, you kind of have to be able to pivot the game plan of the deck, sort of from turn to turn. And in response to what your opponent's doing, it's like, well, I got to pick a bad turn because I need. And I think well, I really liked Quickdraw's discussion of rush decks and the calculations that you do because you have to do. And your whole visualization episode was really, you know, the whole time was like, wow, this is what I do. You know, I'm thinking of like what I do with Judge, you know. And sometimes with Judge, you're you're calculating, you know, you know, four turns ahead, and saying, you know, how much tempo do I need to give my opponent? so i can win Hmm. you know how much can i let them have so i can win because it's it's really a question of i'm going to win you know just like just a stomp if judge high rolls it can be a stomp you know what i mean like it's it's often a game of how many how much rope and slack can i give them before it's time to reel them in and forge and cheat my keys and do all that stuff a lot of math going on a lot of like visualization of of odds on deck draws and um you know checking how many houses are left and like trying to filter cards appropriately when sure. to move cards you know especially because some of the resources are very limited too when do i use submersive principle do i even raise the tide you know sometimes you don't even raise the tide for submersive principle you know it's it's sort of a question of you used know, to say you know what i'm gonna use it now take them off six stall that stall that second key and wait until i can raise the tide with my amberbacks because i can't afford chains in this matchup so there's lots of there's lots of you know small things that you need to eke out of judge, which is why I use judge and adaptive, and I've started using judge and adaptive. 
and it has done really well for me. You know, I got a lot of two O's with Judge. Sure. And you know, and no, no, no shade thrown on my opponents. You know, I think, um, you know, I think one of the one game by, that sticks out in my mind from Kagi is the game I could play against Kavelt. Okay. Um, and because how they played the deck was, you know, I was watching them play the play the deck, and I said, "Wow, like this is." In a, unfortunately for them, a way that was really suboptimal to play judge. Hmm. Um, but they were what they were doing oftentimes seemed like they were kind of ha- um, hand and boarding the deck. Sure. You know, they played the key frog out. They played the infighting out. They played, they sort of just get as much value from each hand as they could rather than trying to get as much value from the deck as they could. And it was a very interesting thing. Kvelde's a very good player. Um, and that was just a really interesting moment of saying like, man, it's just like, it's such, it's such a, seeing the deck played in that way, I'm sure that's how I played it when I, you know, not too long ago. Um, and just the deck behaves so differently. The deck looks terrible. Um, it doesn't look good. Um, and it can still do things, right? It still has lots of pips, but it just, it just looks like a very different deck. Yeah. And, uh, I, I will out myself. Uh, you've been too polite two than, than to do it but uh, i believe you two owed me with judge when we when we encountered each other in uh in kagi uh so that was very very cool and i felt much clunkier in my hands than it seemed in yours uh so hats off to you there and i uh i really like this deck your experience with this deck especially in formats like adaptive as it relates to our topic and the idea of eating out eking out um you know as much value as you can uh, and to make a really like, I don't know, uh, uh, cheesy uh, analogy back to Keyforge as a racing game, you know, as a runner, as like an athlete, you know, you you talk a lot about your your fitness being the one thing that you can control going into a match. Like game day, like things are going to happen. Like you're going to get a weird bounce, you know, a ground ball is going to take a weird bounce or like mm-hmm. RNG is going to happen. But if you're, you know, coming in at, uh, being as fit as you can, having put in as much practice as you can, is like uh, those are all things that you can control before the match even starts. And those are the sorts of things you know, call it getting reps, reviewing a deck with your teammate, whatever. Those are the sorts of things that you can really do to to make sure that you're getting as much as you can out of a deck. And you know, in the context of making it work with a small collection, like that's a big part of it. Like, that's a big part of it. Like, like don't leave value on the table if you're needing to be punching up, right? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. I think that's it's exactly kind of exactly the whole crux of this, of this thing is if you if your decks are the underdog, mm-hmm. you know, in one way or another, then you need to know how to both pilot the deck to get the most out of it, and also try and you know you're playing Red Rover with this, with you know you're in, you're in like third grade and you're playing Red Rover with the eighth graders. You know you've got to find the weak spot in the line to try and break through. Because yeah. if you just go at it. And don't think about it. You're not going to get through to those. Um, for a little schoolyard analogy. There you go. I like it. <laughs> but you know, I, I, it really is something that is is you can certainly punch up. It just it needs to be intentional. And yeah, and I think um, to Quickdraw's point about DT, uh, DT does offer a lot. Of, DT and AOA, I think the sets that offer that the most. I think there's a lot of small pieces of value that can be gained from Dark Tidings and Age of Ascension that aren't as prevalent in other sets, but that if they're if they're done, it's a lot of small advantage that ends up being way greater than the sum of its parts and allowing decks to punch up in ways that they, they shouldn't be otherwise. 
I love the small ball of Keyforge with those sets, right? As opposed to, I mean, everybody loves a good, a good big flashy combo uh, <laughs> as much as the next person, but it is it is super rewarding to cobble together a victory from small incremental advantages over the course of a game. You know, and it's there's there's a real something really rewarding about winning with the underdog deck for me personally. Totally. I know it's really just like doing, especially. I like thinking. I'm a I'm I I like. This isn't throwing shade. People, you know, but I'm not saying like people don't like thinking if they're playing like stronger decks um, or other sets. But I like being forced to work to get the most out of my decks, um, and it feels so rewarding crossing that finish line, knowing that I've I've sort of sculpted this game state that's allowed me to win rather than sort of brute forcing it. Hmm. And and to be to be candid too, there's. There's a feeling of comfort coming in as an underdog as well. It's a management of expectations all on its own. And I think you can wrap your wrap your arms around that and revel in punching up as an underdog coming in with a you know, lower deck count, per se. I want to move us to the uh, the second kind of category of, uh, of formats, too. I think we talked about sort of the, the leave one outs, although we, we hit on adaptive a little bit. So, yeah, I think um, deck swapping, you know, uh, we'll start with adaptive because, you know, we had a lot. lot we, it was a prominent part of the last discussion in adaptive and i've said this another in our last kagi one but every deck is an adaptive deck because mm-hmm. what happens with adaptive is you play a game of archon play a game of reversal and if different players have won those games so it's a one in one match play best of three one on one match then you bid on which deck you want to play in game three and what that's supposed to do you bid chains what that's supposed to do is say, hey, I'm willing to t- play this deck with like six chains. I think I can beat your deck with, with with no chains. And it's a it's a way of equalizing the decks. There's arguments made about how perfect an equalization it is. But all that aside, it's a way of taking two decks, irrespective of how strong they are individually, and just making the match all about this microcosm of how does my deck match up into your deck, which I think is the heart and soul of Keyforge is deck matchups. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter what SAS the deck is. It doesn't matter how good a deck it is. All it matters is how good is it into this deck. And we talk about this all the time where really, really good decks will lose to, you know, decks that people consider really, really bad just because the matchup is, is, is favorable. And it happens. We see it happen. And that is, you know, that's the crux of adaptive. And I think it really helps. If you know your deck really well, you know your matchups, you've played a lot, You've done the reps. You've 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 you have maximized your fitness, as you'd say. Then adaptive is great because adaptive allows you to go with a lot of information on a deck that your opponent maybe isn't evaluating well. You know, obviously they they get two games to see it played. You know, you're the one who has 30, 40, 50 games with it. Sure. They've got one, and I think that's you know that's something where that's a great format to equalize. And then you've got Tesla, Newton, and Moirai that are in here. There's there's others as as well, but in Tesla, Newton. In Tesla, you swap. So each round, you swap whether it's an Archon or Reversal game. Yep. So and if I if I think that's I'm pretty sure that's I'm pretty sure I have Newton and Tesla properly here. If I have them mixed up, my apologies. Um, but Tesla is so you play like four or five rounds, and you roll a dice to say if the first round is Archon or Reversal, then you swap thereafter. And what this does is like you know it has to say like hey your deck has to be such. That it can win an Archon game against other decks, but also be such that in the next round, when it goes and plays a reversal game, you can beat it with whatever deck your opponent gives you. It's a such a fun puzzle 
and it uses you know such interesting decks and it's a great way to sort of take advantage of that deck knowledge you have of having a small collection um and you know it's also a field that equalizes what decks are being brought self-equalizes the decks that are being brought no chain bidding no anything it just self-equalizes because people need to win both a reversal and a archon there's newton and in newton you play a it's got uh, i can't remember the name of the scoring system but basically you play a, a two games it's adaptive without the chain bidding mm-hmm. so you play a game of archon you play a game of reversal if one person wins 2-0 i think they get three points some, whatever it is basically the, if you win two well you get more points if you, if both players win a game you all get less points um so very advantageous to win 2-0 which also self-equalizes the format by making people want to be able to to 2-0 uh, to get two goals because or else you're not it's going to happen and then you're not gonna you're not gonna win um so it self-equalizes the format and all those self-equalizing formats they help players with small collections sort of compete at a level that is you know fair obviously larger players always or larger collections always favored they're going to have maybe a wackier deck or whatever but you can sort of get around that by having deck knowledge mm-hmm and then Moirai is a really fun one for me. It's one of my favorite formats, especially one of my favorite f- create, uh, fan-made formats by Karen. And it is Archon, Reversal, and Adaptive. Adaptive best of one. So just the chain bidding part. But the Twist, which is different than Three Fates, which is a similar one. Um, that's part of the etc. But, and I know JT's a huge fan of Three Fates. Indeed. Uh, but Moirai, is a, the, the wrinkle is that your opponent orders what decks so you bring three decks and your opponent orders the decks are controversial adaptive and then you or you you order your opponents and so then it's done in secret and then both players go and it's you know you say oh man so i have to bring three decks that can do well in all three of those categories and they can be any any caliber decks they can be archon level decks they can be reversal level decks they can be adaptive decks you name it you can run a full gamut there. And there's lots of really fun thinking about solving that puzzle. And all that, in the end, all that really matters is how, the, is how lineups match up anyways. So, yeah. And I think that those sort of formats that reward and incentivize like middle-of-the-bell curve decks and normalized power level of decks is great for small collections. It's really a great way to, to go in. Now, we don't, none of those events have prizing, you know there were primes and stuff that had adaptive um and then shout out to orion on the last episode um now they cannot they can never can never say that the deck won them that adaptive adaptive prime <laughs> uh, that was all player skill uh, orion's a great player uh, but their deck oh, yes, is really absolutely. cool is is it like an archon soul level deck no i wouldn't say it is you know it's not gonna i i, I wouldn't call it that but i think it is it's does so well in adaptive and they won adaptive prime with it. Like, that's so that's so cool that you know Orion had a small collection, has a small collection, as I said on the budgets, the budget, you know, and some of it's purposeful too, right? Um, and then the not the only budget isn't just financial or how many decks you have. There's lots of types of budgets out there and ways you can be a budget player. But yeah, I think you know deck swapping formats and deck bidding formats really help players with small collections use decks and sort of allows them the freedom to bring a lot of different decks. We would be remiss if we didn't take a moment to plug uh, Kagi. I don't know, <laughs> a second here. Um, so if, yeah, if, if you'd like to plug that, absolutely. And I, I will say though, before you do, 
I was looking at some of the uh, result data that you had shared, uh, you know, kind of normalized or, or anonymized or what have you, but it looked like there were a lot more two O's this season than in previous seasons. Is that right? It seems like this season had a lot of two O's. Yeah. A lot of two O's. And I, I don't know if that's a testament to the self-regulation of the, of the format or the field, but it's, it's cool to see either way. It's a bit surprising. And I think maybe it's just how the, how the wind blew this season because I haven't changed anything about the league. You know, I, I'm not I'm not doing anything. I'm not doing anything. The league that's it's been run the same for nine seasons. So I don't know. Maybe this season just was very heavy for two woes, or maybe with nine seasons, people are starting to bring a lot more middling decks. We're uh, looking forward to the top cut of that. It's gonna be fun. Uh, always, yes. Always good once time. it gets published, I, I, you know, my my producer is very tardy on publishing the top cut, <laughs> but I, I've been cracking the whip on them to get it finished. Nice. Very cool. Well, looking forward to that. Uh, and uh, yeah, it did. It stood out to me how the two O's. Uh, it seemed like there were more two O's across the field uh, this time, which uh, is interesting. It's interesting. I think the yeah the golden the ideal ideal state for an adaptive adaptive uh, field or event is maybe either I don't know lots of two O's or lots of game threes with very small chain bids i think that's kind of like the format's in a happy spot i agree and i think you know i'm always i've always been a huge proponent of bring any deck you want i bring a bring a 90 sas heater bring a 100 sas heater bring your reversal level decks bring any deck bring any deck you want to play because i I think adaptive is a home for all of them sure they're um all equally favored as long as you can manage the the game three or punch into that deck and 2-0 they're all favored you know they're all they're all um viable they're all viable all viable i think probably the final question there's the things we can talk about now is decks how to bolster which maybe needs its own episode which is a secondary market topic of you know if i'm a budget player small collection how can i bolster it with a you know maybe not spending too much money in the secondary market and there's also a thing of what do you look for in a budget deck to maybe bring it to a competitive event like archon or Nork Hexad, or Triad, and then we've already done Adaptive, so I think we can sort of leave that section of stuff off, for now at least. Maybe maybe it'll need to, maybe it'll need to revisit. But those are the things I, think I want to talk about. So I think I would like to jump into going to uh, Vervet. I think the Vervet Sorcerer Librarian is kind of the next deck, is kind of the next thing I'd like to talk about. Because I think it has two kettles, it's, it's I was going to say two kettles, one fish, but that's not that's not, not the analogy I was looking for. It's two birds <laughs> of one stone. Or turn of phrase. That's what, that's what I'm thinking. Um, so this is both a secondary market deck that I bolstered my small collection with hmm. for very cheap. I bought the Soft Doctor Sheep. But it is also a um, it's a deck I had in my Nordic Hexad. Mm-hmm. You know, this is a deck that I don't think mo- a lot of people are going to look at it. And I th- they're gonna sneeze at it you know like they're not gonna they're not gonna pay it the respect that i think it deserves and dr sheep certainly didn't right he, he i got it for five dollars you know it was just the token token value for the deck i i wanted a, i wanted a gang or not uh, a gang or not deck was the main goal in the search i found dr sheeps sure here and i said oh, yeah this looks pretty good I, I tested it felt pretty good and turns out it is good and you know you have future sass turned on if you don't have future sass it's a 67 um otherwise it is a 69 yep and you know it's it's a theme with pretty much most of my budget decks is that it has low a and it has no r um 
and I'll I'll quickly divert the conversation to say artifact control, in my opinion, is a scam. <laughs> and I will circle back around when we talk about qualifications for competitive decks in a small okay. collection. Okay. Um. So yeah, this is a deck where obviously the stars the star of the show is Brobnar. It's AOA, sixty-seven SAS, and it's Brobnar disc shadows, gang or not. Like I said, then the Brobnar side. I actually don't know how much sa- I actually don't know how much SAS the Brobnar side has. Is it twenty-three? So nothing 23. spectacular. You know, nothing to write home about. Actually, it's pretty equal, equal stats across. 23 Brobnar, 20, 22 Dis, and 22 Shadows. And, you know, it's sort of functioning in a way that the Brobnar is the star of the show. It's the main house. You want to go into it a lot. Gain as much value as you can. You can, right? It's got two Foozles. It's got a Gang of Chieftain. But it has a Relentless Assault um, and then a Groke. So lots of ways to kind of, like, recycle damage on things with the, with the Drummer Knot and the Gang of Chieftain. Um, Groke's for some Groke for some amber control, and it has uh, two foozles to gain a lot of sort of make the fighting a lot more profitable. Mm. And then it has two binding irons in dis, which is a ton of value. Right, chains are can be really hurtful, um, especially against creature decks. Right, which this deck kind of wants to this deck kind of wants to have an emptier board, and it's harder for a creature deck to flood if it's, it's on using smaller hands. So that helps help set up the Brobnar. It's got three unlock gateway, which really helps clear the board. Oftentimes they're discards. You know, you're not trying to clear, trying to wipe your board. Oftentimes they're discards, but it's really nice to have one tucked away just in case with a with a um, dust chronicles or yeah, I say just dust chronicles. Mm-hmm. It's got a lash of broken dreams. It's got a life ward for some tempo, um, which can also help set up the Brobnar. Uh, Ancient Yurk and Yurk, which are really important efficiency in this deck. You kind of have to be really ruthless with um cards to help move them because the deck will get clogged on hands sure um just by the nature of wanting to go into brobnar so much so taking a turn to just toss things out um this can be really important and then the shadows has you know it's got 18 c in this deck which is a huge it's you know talking about having a deck having a game plan the game plan is to kill the opponent's board never let them get set up with with creatures and win the game through the Brobnar. That's the game plan. Yeah, you know, I, I hopefully, hopefully, I can. I'm talking to you through that matchup, that theoretical matchup, and you can understand how how it will win. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, it, if you said you said, "Hey, I uh, I pop my life ward, unlock gateway, and then next turn gang or not," I'm like, "Okay, got it." Like, yeah, you, you you, I could see you winning that game for sure. Yeah, for sure. And so it it it, it does that, and it, it does it pretty consistently. Um, and it has some weaknesses, right? It'll lose to rush. It will. Yeah. Okay, nothing I can do about that. It's only real amber controls on like is as Lasher Broken Dreams plus TMTP. Um it has no efficiency to store them, really. So you know, it's 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 kind of just a if it hits, it hits. And then although it does have a take that smarty pants, which being in the NKFL, <laughs> it got a lot of value. It's still a lot of amber that that take that smarty pants. Sure. No one ever played around it. No, I mean, yeah, the only way out is through. Take that, smarty pants. I don't know. Exactly. Um, <laughs> so, uh, you know, this is interesting, though. I mean, I, I agree with you that a lot of folks wouldn't have taken a second look at the deck. Um, though, hearing you when you talk through it, there's some really cool stuff going on. You picked it up as I want to have a token uh, gang or not combo deck, right? Um, at That's what right. point? At what point were you like, oh wait, actually, this is probably a hexad contender? You know, like, at what uh, when I tested it before I bought it. 
Okay. Interesting. So before you even bought it, you're like, you know what? Like I found this, I found this uh, for a meme, but it's actually a contender. Yeah. Yeah. I, I did find it for a meme. I just wanted a, a game out combo. I thought it was really cool. I wanted it. I looked yeah. around and I found this one. I tested it. Um, and I was like, oh, this deck feels good. Like this, it, it was, I could really kind of see after like three or game, three or four games with it, that it really had some good things going on with it. And it had a game plan that I could lean into. Um, and I wasn't that far along my Keyforge career with this deck. You know, I, I went into, I got into Keyforge hard and fast, but you know, I, I wasn't that far into it. And the thing that put me off, it was the low Amber control score. Mm-hmm. Um, but eventually I did, I did, I did put it in my, my Hexad lineup and it was a few seasons after I bought it. Um, cause I was sort of, I wanted a crusher. I wanted a deck that could handle boards. Yes. And this deck does that, right? It's got 18 C and real, real 18 C. Um, so it, it, it filled that salt in my lineup. It, it drew some bands. I think it drew three bands over the course of the season, which was, oh, to me, it was wild. I was, I was happy to see the bands on it. Um, it didn't win any games. I think I played it every, every match, but it didn't win any games, <laughs> but I, it, it almost won all the games. Yes. Which to me was enough to be like, this deck was a success. You've got to be really careful looking at your Hexad results. It's it's very, I don't know, there there are a lot of matchups that feel very close and you walk away having lost 0-3, 3-0. And uh, it's really easy to get sucked into like, wow, I lost 0-3. But looking back at the individual games, like, no, this was a close match. You have to be very careful not to get too results driven in your in your analysis there. And for me as a, I've sort of, you know, I've harped on this top point a lot but being a, a budget player or a player with a small collection you really can't be too results oriented mm. your goal has to be your play in the game you know going with understanding you're the underdog maybe your decks aren't the best but can i be the best player i can be in this game can i give it a good show and i think that, that i think that should be everyone's goal regardless of how good their decks are how big their collections are because i think that's sort of how you grow as a player um sort of as you said that self-focused competitiveness Sure. I think that's really important in NKFL, especially because some of the some of those stats are are really funky. Is is you know bans is a ban worth the same as a win, all that kind of stuff. If your save deck doesn't win, is that a is that really bad? You know, is that like a huge mistake? You saving that deck? It's just so much nuance. Totally. Well, uh, it's it's a really cool deck. And you say uh, Vervet or Verve? I say Vervet. Bold. It's just a really fun little deck, and it's a deck that I, is near and dear to my heart, partially because of the find, like the secondary market find of it, and um, it really being a really punchy, scrappy underdog. I am interested in that too. Uh, we've talked about wanting to play our own decks. A lot of folks will say that they have a stronger connection to decks that they've opened, and that's that's fine. Like uh, I, that's that's totally cool. Like I have some very strong connections with decks that I've found on the secondary market. It sounds like this is one that falls in that camp for you. Hundred percent. Is it fair to say that you prefer to avoid borrowing team decks for large events? You know, for the competitive events, as it were. Yes, I, I, I do. Yeah. You do have a deep bench to pull from, I would say. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, I think there's there's lots of very good decks among my teammates' collections, and mm-hmm. some of that's been curated for secondary market purchases from them. There is ones there, but yeah, you know, I, I very much prefer to play my own uh, play my own decks. This is all about how we find the uh, the joy in the playing for sure. So if that's what does it for you, then that's what does it for you. I dig it. I mean, I think you'll find that as the overwhelming overwhelming sentiment among players. Uh, there are absolutely folks out there who will who will borrow and share, but I think you'll find the overwhelming sentiment is among is that folks tend to prefer playing their own decks. 
I think uh, some of my teammates have decks I really like that maybe I, I would steal if you know if it was ethical. <laughs> um, and in those cases, it's sort of one of those things um, where I'd be happy to borrow those decks. You know, like I I I love some of those decks, and I really enjoy playing them. Uh, the aesthetic Sombra, maybe I can pull it up for you. Is one of those decks that's it's Karen's deck, and I every day I am jealous that it is not mine. Yes, I know this deck well. It's it's the or I believe I do anyway. So maybe uh, I fifty percent know this deck very well. <laughs> but the double Martian generosity deck is that the one? No, that's they who foolishly exalts the war. Ah, Aesthetic yeah. Sombra is a AOA deck. It is a sixty three SAS AOA. It has a Martian generosity. It is such a fun little deck. It is a deck that I think went undefeated two seasons in a row in NK in, in Diamond of NKFL mm-hmm. or Diamond and Gold. Or maybe it was like it was like four and two or something like that across one season. It, it beat really really good decks, and it's such a fun little deck. Oh man, I wish I have it. It would be in my hexad apps hundred percent. Yeah, lots of archiving, Martian generosity. Yeah, good stuff in here for sure. Low amber control, you know, which <laughs> I, I I guess I like. I guess I like not being able to control my opponent's amber. It is the classy way to play. What can I say? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, maybe maybe round us out then. Uh, you have you had a point that I want to make sure we hit before we. Uh, move on to playing a game ourselves. Artifact control is a scam, you say? That's right. So one of the biggest misnomers in the community sentiment around decks mm. is how important artifact control is. It is a mantra I live by, and I think it small pairs of small collections who have limited op- availability of options need to take this to heart as well. That artifact control, and I have said this, I will scream this to the high heavens. If you give me a soapbox, I will say DT best set, and then artifact is a scam. in that order you cannot sacrifice deck power or deck quality for the sake of artifact control Mm. it is not worth it it's it's just not worth it the returns are not there artifact control is already a situational piece your opponent has to have artifacts that matter the artifact control has to come at timely and your artifact control has to hit the desired artifact and the opponent has to not get value out of that artifact and oftentimes, mm. decks that are artifact heavy have more than one artifact. Sure. So then, it is, does it even matter if you have a reclaim by nature for their one if they have four? And if they have a lot of artifacts, maybe they jar your one artifact control card. Certainly, those, those are fighting words against some players. And you had Second Act on here as well. You know, you, you had Seknok on here as well, who's they would only buy decks in the secondary market that have artifact control, which I understood is a totally fair point. Um, mm. If you're spending money on a deck, you want it to be well rounded, totally get that. For me, you know, it's 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 simply a luxury for the already rich. If your deck's already good enough to win a game, it's just a nice aside. Um, I don't think I don't think R will ever make a deck. Now, maybe in a in a try and a banded deck selection banning sense, maybe it can, right? Maybe you have a deck that has like five reclaimed by natures and just hates artifacts, and maybe that's good enough to win. But I think generally it does not make a deck. It's just sort of like a nice addition to a deck, and so. When you're perusing a deck, never ever discount a deck because it doesn't have artifact control, and mm. never sacrifice uh, deck quality for the sake of bringing in artifact control. Because I think, you know, with besides like a, a small array of you know edge cases, even if the deck has good artifacts, if your deck has a game plan, you can just play your game plan and still win, for most cases. I think that is. Uh... Sage advice, especially for those with the small collection, I I do personally value artifact control. And there's a there's a but coming though. Um, 
I think the but is that if I have to make a concession somewhere, it would be to the to that to that stat in terms of if I'm if I'm like putting together a lineup. It, it is it is tough. I know that I breathe a big sigh of relief when I look at an opposing hex head lineup, say, and see only one deck with artifact control, because uh, I do bring some some mean old artifact decks. Yeah, it's tough. I think if you're if you're in a position where you don't have two really good decks, one with artifact control and without, then yeah, I would not sacrifice I would not sacrifice deck strength just for the R, just for the R. Uh, if you're looking to upgrade your your collection and you already have six heavy hitters, then you could perhaps be in a position to you know shrug off the ones that don't have the R. And there's an element of playstyle and affinity there as well. Uh, some folks just have more fun knowing that they have answers. Um, For sure. Uh, but I, I agree with you that uh, especially if you're trying to put together your best six decks from 200, say, you can't really, you should not hamstring yourself to those with R. That's also an important place where you start to distinguish between comp- competitive and casually competitive. Because in casually competitive, the goal is to have fun. Competitive mm. is the goal is to win. So, you know, the spike does not care if they're having fun as long as they're winning. <laughs> in that sense, I still stand by the fact that Artifact controls the scam. If your favorite deck archetype is mid-range and you have a small collection, you're probably not going to, you know, you, you can't expect yourself to do super well at these, at these events that have a lot of way better mid-range decks. Mm. It's just, unfortunately, where the archetype can struggle. As someone who loves mid-range myself, I mean, I love mid, I love MM mid-range decks. So if we're talking competitive mindsets, R is, R is even more important to sacrifice. Hmm. Oddly, you know, oddly enough, I think it's, I think it's way more important to sacrifice R in competitive because, especially in Archon settings, decks are very proactive. And proactive is typically king in KeyForge. Proactivity is typically king in KeyForge. Um, there are control decks; they do exist, and you know they need to be respected. However, I think generally proactivity is usually the the best game plan. And so, if your deck has a game plan and lean can lean into it, I think that is way more important than having answers. Well, you heard it here, folks. We'll have to have uh, have you and John back on to duke out the R question at some point. <laughs> I would love to. I would love to. Yeah, I think I I know I'm. You know, it's controversial, and you know I've had some people agree with me, some people don't. Um, I think, but I do think my stance on small collections cannot cannot afford to make concessions to have R is generally true. Mm. Certainly, uh, now in stereo, a very strong player on our team would agree with you on that. Tends to say that the artifact control is overrated, and I would agree with the sentiment that like I would I would definitely get on board with saying you should not make you know material sacrifices on deck strength for the sake of R. If, if that's what mm-hmm. it comes down to. And even like if you're, if you're looking for meta reads or anything like that, you know, like it's just artists can't be in your consideration at all mm-hmm. for, for decks. You know, you kind of get, you kind of get, once you get into um, banning formats, maybe you can start say like, well, I'll sacrifice one slot to have a deck with R. Yep. But even then, I, I, if the opponent cares about R, they're just going to ban it. Or they're not, they're not threatened by it. And then it's, is it even doing what it's supposed to do? You know, it's just it's just one of those those you know if you need you need either two or four some multiple of two um, decks with R because they are either going to ban two of them or one of them and you get to save one so it's sort of a and then you have to suddenly have four decks with R and then are you would you really have a small collection yeah 
or yeah. have you severely sacrificed deck quality right so um it's just one of those things where i i do think are just shouldn't be in people's consider people budget players and people with small small collections shouldn't be in their considerations because r is also going to make decks you know quote unquote better it's going to raise their price yeah yeah if you if you are if you are looking for saving a saving a few bucks or working on a budget then avoiding r is a great way to to negotiate down a price for sure Mm-hmm. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This section of bottom of the beaker sponsored by JDG three fourteen. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And you know what? It, I also I'm also, you know, I I like Chandra a lot. I've casted a lot. Artifact control is not the answer to Chandra. Mm. Like, you know, I, I don't think you beat Chandra. I think artifact control is really nice into Chandra. It's not the answer to Chandra. And I, you know, that is also something that, you know, I have had a lot of discussions with teammates about as well. Chandra is a very well-known deck, and I think everyone is very feared. And there's lots of discussions of, well, how do you beat this deck? Yep. Especially because our, my teammates play against JDG and like NKFL all the time. <laughs> and so I was like, can I leave Chandra unbanned? Can I do that? Every every time they play, it's can I can I not ban Chandra? And sometimes the answer is yes. Sometimes the answer is yes. Yeah, there are other, there are other attacks to take to fight it for mm-hmm. sure. But it is it's a beautiful deck. The one of Alter, so. Oh no! Sorry, this game second place. Second place at nationals and second place at the Vault Tour to Jacques, Seattle. which did not have R. Yeah, that's right. It did. It did only. It got two second places. Just really good. It's an incredible deck, absolutely. And JDG plays it very well. Yes. We have gone long, so I want to wrap up. Uh, unless there's any quick points you want to make before we transition. No, I think um, I think hopefully hopefully this discussion has been helpful for people. You know, I hope there's some people with small collections out there who've have gained some value from this discussion and i think just to sort of to sort of round off the conversation again i think the one of the most important things we can do as players regardless of our collection size but especially with people with small collections is manage our expectations hmm. you know really be honest with ourselves what are our goals going into an event what are our goals going into a league um what are our events what are our goals going into a, a locals and you know what are we trying to get out of this hobby of keyforge those are really important questions to ask, um, and you know, more important than getting deck, getting reps on decks. More important than scouring the secondary market and testing and doing theory crafting and all this stuff. The most important thing is working on your approach to the game and what you bring to the table every every time you sit down. Because I think that's that is where you're going to get the most value from this hobby. Is if you're approaching it and coming at it it, it from a healthy and realistic but you know a healthy or realistic mindset where the goal is to enjoy it so i think management of expectations is the most important thing and then depending on what tier you're looking to slot yourself into or what type of activity you're trying to engage in, in a competitive casually competitive um casual or solo you know then you can sort of you can work on the management expectations from that point and then you can go over like okay what what is my deck selection going to look like? What do I need to do to do that? Um, and, you know, this is just a lot of things we can do as people with small collections to get value out of them, maximize our own enjoyment, and then also maximize our ability to be competitive. Hmm. Regardless of collection size, regardless of deck quality, you know, you can win a game against the best deck in the world if you play a good, clean game with a deck that has a game plan. And I, I believe that from the bottom of my heart. I believe that. 
You can be the Yu-Gi-Oh anime protagonist, the voice of one. <laughs> well, I can't think of a better note to end on than that, other than to, uh, other than to highlight that we found out you're on Team Pilot, um, much like uh, <laughs> Drascor and SC Steel. So, <laughs> <laughs> yes, I am. Yeah, <laughs> I am. Pilot. Right on. Well, folks, uh, we do have a sponsor for today's episode. Uh, actually, there was a long lost book written by uh, Dr. Seuss that's come to light and the publishers reached out and wanted to sponsor an episode of Bottom of the Beaker. Um, this episode of Bottom of the Beaker is brought to you by the folks behind Befuddle McDuddle. Uh, Dr. Seuss introduces readers to the charming chaos of the crucible. Uh, our endearing protagonist, Befuddle McDuddle, turns ordinary moments into whimsical wonders with his knack for mixing up words. Delightful antics abound in this tongue twister of a tale that's sure to be an instant classic among Archon's young and old. Head on down to your friendly local bookstore and pick up a copy today. So yeah, check it out. Befuddle McDuddle. Good times. Folks, I want to let you all know that Bottom of the Beaker is filmed live right here at twitch.tv slash sloppy lab work. Tuesday nights at 9.30 Eastern. Actually, we're, we're kicking around a potential change to the evening and time, but more on that later. So we'll see. Uh, you can find recordings of our past shows and other streams over at uh, youtube.com. Search for at sloppy lab work over there. And for the very best content, uh, 34. Uh, no, no, 57 times distilled and scraped from the bottom of the beaker. Search for that very phrase, bottom of the beaker, in your podcatcher of choice, and you'll find us there, uh, ready to make most of your collection with you. Thanks so much to Murph for joining this evening and talking Keyforge with us. It was an absolute pleasure, as always. Thank you, Murph. Uh, any, any final words? Tell us, uh, give us a send off and tell us you know, where folks can find you on the internets. Yes, um, everyone can find me at um, Fudgenator117. Uh, on YouTube, I'm just having www.youtube.com forward slash Fudgenator117. You'll find me. You can find me at, at twitch.tv forward slash Fudgenator, and I will be there as well. And I go live mostly whenever I have a league match to play, although I am looking to start doing, I don't know, I don't think they'll be regular. Don't expect to be regular streams, but, you know, other, 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 uh, more casual streams. Um, now that I have some, uh, I, I got to use this stream deck that I got, this new webcam. So I got to use it. And um, but yeah, I think the final words that I, I must say, and I'm legally obligated as per my contract, is DT best set. <laughs>